All right. Well, we are on lesson 10 from uh, our study for Sunday school, Prophet, Priest, and King, The Roles of Christ in the Bible and Our Roles Today by Richard Belcher, Jr. So a lot of this material is going to be coming from his book, uh, chapter 4, The Role of Priest in the Old Testament. So... What I'd like us to do, like we did, we've done a couple of times, is we're going to read together um, some of the catechism question and answer. So I will read the question, and then we'll have a responsive reading where you all will then read the answer, and we'll go through that for these seven questions. Then we'll recap really quickly from last week's lesson, and then we're going to just jump in full bore, you know, two feet in, pencil dive, and, and get going to the bottom. So let's do that. All right, so question 22, I'll read the question, and then we'll all respond with the answer together. Question 22, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. All right, question 23, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 24, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Excellent. And now this is the... uh, Westminster Children's Catechism with, with Baptist updates. And I love this because it, it makes it even more like simple and like right to the point. Question 65. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer. I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Question 66. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer. I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. And lastly, question 67. Why do you need Christ as a king? Answer. I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. Excellent. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, that's what this whole study is really emphasizing, how the whole Bible connects together with these themes of prophet, priest, and king, and how we see everything in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ and his church, and we see, we see that. So, yeah, it's just really beautiful. So, again, this morning, um, we're just from a real quick recap. So, if you remember, last week we focused on big picture when we talk about priest. And, again, this is before and after the fall. What are we talking about? We're talking about the special presence of God, right? And access to this special presence of God. The same special presence we see in the temple and we see in the tabernacle. And so we we covered uh, the creation and the cosmos as a temple. We covered the Garden of Eden as a temple, Adam and Eve in God's image as priests. 
then secondly, we looked at uh, the creation of Israel uh, and, and as this corporate Adam and the divine image where, they, where Israel was to function similarly to Adam. And we looked at Sinai as a temple and Israel as priests and then the tabernacle and temples uh, or tabernacle and temple as models of the cosmos, right? The three areas of holiness, the outer court, the, 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 uh, the holy place or the inner court, and then the holy of holies, right? And then we looked just briefly at the latter days, this projection forward of this end time priest to come and then his people um, that are associated with him. This, this one who represents many, uh, and we looked in particular at the servant song, uh, from Isaiah. So, a little recap, and now we'll go ahead and hop in. So, simple definition of a priest. This is adapted from uh, Ben Glad's book, and it is to serve, mediate, and extend God's glorious presence to the ends of the earth. And we were, we're reminded that priestly service relates to understanding, responding, and even guarding access to God's special presence. In one sense, it is about access, right? Access to the Lord's special presence, right? That's different from the Lord who is omnipresent, right? Everywhere at once, right? But the sense in which God dwells with his people in a special way. And so last week, we looked at that overarching big picture kind of theme. This week, we're going to hunker down into the details, right? Post-fall with Adam and Eve, how does a holy God dwell with sinful people? And that's what priesthood is all about, right? When we think about the role of priest in the Old Testament, right? It requires altars and sacrifices and priests. So with that, on your notes, we'll get started with four. The role of the priest in the Old Testament. So um, if you will, just turn real quick in your, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. So we spent a lot of time last week in Genesis 1 and 2 and just covered a lot of really good ground and uh, Pastor Des had even spent time in that a couple weeks before. It's just really helpful to orient our minds. But I want to start in Genesis 3, 21 this morning and we're going to see something. If I can have a volunteer read Genesis 3, 21. All right, perfect. Perfect. So we see the introduction to animal skins, right, in Genesis 3.21, which alludes to the need for the shedding of blood to cover sin and shame, right? And then this introduces the idea, and we're going to see this with Noah, right? If we were to trace through the book of Genesis, we see this idea that altars must be built and sacrifices need to be offered, right? Well, Where were we in Genesis 3? We're right at the tail end of Adam and Eve and the sin in the garden, right? So something drastically changed when sin entered the world. And now as a result, we see animal skins, sacrifices, altars, right? Noah offered burnt offerings to the Lord after the flood. And Abraham built altars in Canaan, right, as he traveled through the land. We're reminded in Job chapter 1, right? where Job served as a priest for his family, where he, would, where he would offer sacrifices to consecrate his children, if you remember that. He would rise up. 
And then the, the need for an official priesthood arose when the family of Israel grew to the size of a nation. And we see this with the people being redeemed out of Egypt, right? And when they're taken out of Egypt, we see this in Exodus, and then introduced. And then God is going to provide covenant to, to stipulate what will this relationship look like, right? Building on that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, now... There's a little bit of a difference here. If you remember, we covered the theme of prophet not too long ago. And when we talked about prophets in the Old Testament, right, there was this like really key text, Deuteronomy 18. And I want to say we spent like, I think, half of an entire lesson on Deuteronomy 18. And it was awesome, right? Really good stuff in there. When we talk about priesthood, it's not like one major text, right? We're talking about major portions of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, right, relate to the priesthood. Now, we are not going to look at all of those. So this is going to be, from that standpoint, a very high level, right, introduction and just, okay, what are some of these functions? So, but again, as we get into the details, what, what are these details? These are details that help us to explore and understand the role and functions of priests and sacrifices in the Old Testament, because ultimately they were pointing forward to who, right? To Christ, the greater priest, the greater sacrifice, right? So, yes, and, and so the details are good, but we, we'll remember and kind of see that. So, all right. So, on your notes, uh, A, holy mediators. So, we're going to take a quick look at um, how these priests served as people that were consecrated, right? Holy, set apart, but then also acted in a mediatorial role, right? They mediated between God and the people. So, as a result, this role, right, of, of these priests, these holy mediators, included representing God to the people, but it also included bringing the needs of the people, right? So there's this reciprocal aspect. The general work of the priest can be described as, as it says in 1 Samuel 2.18, ministering before the Lord. To accomplish the role of mediator, they had to be set apart as holy to the Lord. And that's what holiness means, right? Set apart in a special way to fulfill a special function for God and for his people. The priests were set apart by, and this is what we're going to cover on our, on our notes, right? The garments they wore, the oil with which they were anointed, and the hereditary priestly line, right? All of these were showing that they were marked and to be different than just all the regular congregation of Israel. And so, and that's what we're going to take a look at. We're going to distinguish between um, the Levites, the priests, and then the high priests, right? Because each of those have different requirements associated with their role, function, and then in particular, how close they were to the special presence of the Lord, right? With the high priest being the one who had access to the most restricted holy of holies. So, the priestly line on your notes, point one. The priestly line. So in Exodus 28.1, Moses is told to set apart his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons to serve as priests. The priesthood is hereditary, right? It's, it's passed through um, with, with sonship. And, and they will all be descendants of Aaron. And the interesting thing is, no reason is really given for this, right? Other than the text just clearly states, this is what's going to happen in Exodus 28.1. But it is interesting to note, 
right? In, uh, in Exodus 32, if we remember when Moses went up to receive the law, right? And he comes down in Exodus 32, what happened with the people, right? They had fashioned a golden calf. And who was fashioning the golden calf? Aaron, right? And, and yet the Lord in his grace still allowed Aaron and Aaron's sons to serve as, as, as priests, um, which is just amazing when you think about God's, God's grace, right, in, in that stamp, from that standpoint, especially when you compare it with Nadab and Abihu, who, at, now we'll say, were already ordained as priests, and we'll see this a little later, but the Lord consumed them because they offered profane fire, unauthorized fire during worship. So, so in, um, and even after the golden calf incident, right, with Moses coming down the mountain with his shining face, they were allowed to come near Moses, right? They, the people, including Aaron, and, who, and Moses had been, been in the presence of God, and it was a reminder that God's presence would continue to be them, even as reflected with Moses. And it's interesting because then it immediately transitions right after that, right, to the end of Exodus, major portions discussing what? The tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? Well, that is the mobile place of God's special dwelling with his people, right? So it's like Moses comes down from being in the special presence of God, and then how is it going to exist with his people? Through the tabernacle. So, so we see the priestly line, right? The priests will be sons of Aaron. But then secondly, the, uh, the, um, the priests will be set apart by the garments because these garments were special and distinct. And they would have stood out, right, from the people, just like police officers, right, are wearing something different than what everyone else is wearing, right? So the priests would have been identified not only from the hereditary line, being sons of Aaron, but also by the garments that they wore. And I think it's interesting, right, because um, in, uh, uh, in Exodus 28.4, they're called holy garments, right? And that's because these garments were to help show that they were to be set apart to the Lord, right? It's this idea of consecration as you are entering God's holy presence, as you are getting closer and closer to his presence, right? There's this emphasis with holiness. So, and some really interesting stuff um, when it says that the garments for Aaron and his sons are said to be for glory and for beauty. You see this overlap where the same two words used for glory and beauty in Exodus 28.2 and Exodus 28.40 to explain their garments also are used to describe the Lord in his glory and in his holy habitation, in his presence, right? So there's almost this idea that when you see the priest and you see the garments and they were designed to show this kavod, this, this, this weightiness, this glory, it was to reflect the Lord's glory, and assign dignity and honor to this role. So almost in a sense, the priests are reflecting the glory of the Lord as they are ministering to him in his presence. And, and it's really interesting. Um, uh, Belcher had some really, really fascinating stuff. Again, I, I know garments, right? In one sense, you read this in the Old Testament, and you're like, this is really boring, right? Like there's just certain parts where you can struggle more, where you're like, make some of these connections. But it is interesting, and I want to bring out one of the ones that he makes. Um, and uh, so he talks about the garments of the high priest, uh, specifically the ephod. And, um, 
And so the ephod is, is described in Exodus 28, verses 6 through 14. And it's like an apron hung around from the shoulders with two shoulder straps, which had two onyx stones attached to them. These stones contained the names of the sons of Israel with six names engraved on each. The setting of each stone was made of delicate patterns of gold attached by two golden chains. And this is key. The purpose of these stones was for Aaron to bear the names of Israel before the Lord for remembrance. Uh, and we see that in, in Exodus 28. But then it asks the question, remembrance for who, right? God is God. God does not need to be reminded uh, as though he had forgotten. But the idea was that the high priest presented them, the people, to the God who was able to meet all their needs in light of his covenant promises. And the high priest represented all Israel by presenting the people before the Lord. So it's interesting, the symbolism that's tied in intentionally with the high priest in his garments. So, so we see the priests as holy mediators because of their uh, sons of Aaron. We see garments. And then lastly, consecrated for service, anointed with oil. So similar as we saw with prophet and as we'll see with king, when we think about how individuals were brought into their office, ordained into their office, it generally would be with the anointing of oil, right? And that's, and it, so if you remember the, the, the Hebrew term for anoint, right, is the same word that we use for Messiah, and the Greek term for that is Christ, right? So when we talk about Christ, we're talking about the anointed one, and the anointed one, it, it comes to mind all these themes of prophet and priest and king, right? So, so the priesthood, Aaron and his sons were set apart as priests, um, uh, in Exodus 28:41, instructions were given for this ceremony, and then it was expanded in Exodus 29, where it gives more details. And then in Leviticus 8, we actually see this take place. So I want to read. If you want to turn in your Bibles, turn to Exodus 28:41. Exodus 28:41, and it says uh, Exodus 28:41. And you shall put them, and that's specifically the garments mentioned in verse 40, on Aaron your brother, and on his sons with him, and three keywords, and shall anoint them, right? Secondly, ordain them, and then thirdly, consecrate them, that they may serve me as what? As priests. So we see this idea of anoint, ordain, and consecrate. And so we've, we've covered this idea of anointing with oil, and just, I feel like every time we do this, I just have to like bring up this. I love this text. Isaiah 61, uh, sorry, Isaiah 61.1, where we start to see this development of anointing, but, um, but not just anointing with oil, but anointing with the Holy Spirit. And there's two texts in, in the Old Testament that really come to mind. One is Isaiah 61.1, and then Zechariah chapter 4. But Isaiah 61.1, I just want to read the intro because this is what Christ opens up with in Luke 4. In Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So we see this connection even in Isaiah 61 of the Spirit of the Lord and then anointing. Right, And, and that will really come crystal clear 
as we look into the New Testament, and Des kind of covered that uh, two or three weeks ago, going through Christ as, as priest. So, more to be said about anointing and ordination, um, uh, but I think for, for time's sake, we see these three aspects bringing out um, holy mediators. They were set apart, and they were set, there were several things indicating their holiness, that they were set apart for special service for the Lord's special presence. All right, so now let's go to the ministry of the Levites. And, uh, and, and the ministry of the Levites is fascinating, right? Because in one sense, they're not the sons of Aaron, right? They're the sons of Levi. And yet in another sense, uh, it's, it, it's fascinating how the Lord brings them in and how they become associated with um, uh, the priests and, and the temple. So if you remember a little bit about their history, if you remember Simeon and Levi, both sons of Jacob, they were cursed by their father in Genesis 49 for their deceit, anger, and revenge over the defilement of their sister, Dina. And the curse was what? The curse was that they would be divided and scattered in Israel, right? They would be different than the rest of the tribes in Israel. And so the descendants of Levi did not receive an inheritance of land, and they were scattered to be among the other 10 tribes of Israel. And what's even more fascinating is the curse of being scattered was turned into a blessing because the sons of Levi supported Moses in the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, in particular verses 28 and 29. If you remember, because of all the idolatry, Moses was commanded that those committing idolatry were to be put to death. And who carried out that function to serve for Moses? It was the sons of Levi. And so, as a result, Moses blessed them by setting them apart for the service of the Lord to assist the priests in their work. When Moses blessed the Levites, he uses the same terminology that had been used in the ceremony to set apart Aaron and his sons. So it's interesting, right? We think about um, uh, God's special presence. And so you're going to have these three categories, right? You have the Levites, the sons of Aaron, right? The priests. And then you're going to have the high priest, right? And they are all associated with God's special presence, tabernacle and the temple. So, so let's go ahead and kind of look through like, okay, what does that look like for the Levites? And then we'll, we'll pick it up and, and, and then take a look at the priests and then um, the high priest. So, relationship to the firstborn. So on your notes, we're going to look at the relationship to the firstborn. So the Levites have a special relationship to the firstborn of Israel, right? We see this in Numbers 3. And in verses 11 through 13, actually just turn in your Bibles to Numbers 3. We're just going to read two texts and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to explain. So turn your Bible to Numbers chapter 3. We might not have a ton of time to kind of bring out some possibilities or implications here, but still. So Numbers chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7, and then we'll look at verses 11 through 13. So Numbers 3, if I can have a volunteer read verses 6 and 7. All right, Jeremy. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priests, that they may serve him. 
They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. Perfect. Yes. All right. And then another volunteer to read verses 11 through 13. So, this interesting relationship, as we saw in verses 12 and 13, between the Levites and the firstborn. And so the Levites serve in place of the firstborn. And, and it actually, it's really interesting, because then you go back and you look at these texts in Exodus, where it talks about um, um, priests, right? Uh, like, like in Exodus uh, 19.22, where Mo- Moses warned the priests who come near to consecrate themselves. Or in, um, uh, uh, in, in, in uh, Exodus 13, uh, verses 1 and 2, we see these, these call out of priests. And so it might be that the firstborn sons of Israel served as priests, and now the Levites are almost taking, taking this, this functional role. Again, the, the text doesn't say that, but it could be an implication, you know, trying to put some of these, some of these ideas together. So, So we get that from Numbers. Very interesting. Bottom line, Levites take the firstborn sons of Israel's place as they serve and do the work to help these newly ordained priests, sons of Aaron. But secondly, guarding the temple. And and, and what Jeremy read from Numbers 3 and verses 6 and 7, uh, in verse 7, we covered this last week. There's two interesting terms used here to talk about the Levites and, and the tabernacle. And that is guard and serve. And, and we talked about that as it relates to Adam and Eve and their role in the garden and then how it's used to describe even, uh, even later for the tabernacle and priestly service. So one of the roles of the Levites is to guard the tabernacle. And we see this in Numbers 1 through 10. And while other Israelites are selected, right, from this census to serve as warriors in the promised land, the sons of Levites are selected to camp around, guard, and move the tabernacle as they progress in to the promised land of Canaan, covenant land. And so, um, so and there's uh, different things that they're supposed to do. Um, they were on, quote-unquote, uh, guard duty. Uh, like, for example, if an outsider was any unauthorized person um, uh, who was to come in, uh, he, he was to be put to death because the area must be protected. God's special presence must be protected. Um, and, so, and so they served to protect the purity of the holy, sacred space of God's presence in the tabernacle so that his wrath would not fall on the camp. We see this in Numbers 1, uh, chapter 1, verse, verse 53. But the role of the Levites changed once the Ark of the Covenant became housed in a stationary temple, right? Remember, the tabernacle was the mobile 
uh, uh, a dwelling place of God, but the temple was stationary. And, and it was not to be moved from place to place. And, and David instituted this change when the ark was brought to Jerusalem before the temple was built. And that leads us into this next section. So section three, talking about the ministry of the Levites, we now look at not only as guardians of the temple, or sorry, uh, of the tabernacle, but assistance in worship. And uh, First Chronicles uh, relays some of these different things. Um, when we see when the ark comes to Jerusalem, it also records uh, some of the Levites' permanent appointments to minister before the ark in verse 4, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord. And so um, certain Levites would have the responsibility of playing music to assist in worship. And their role was to sing thanksgiving in verse 6 and, um, and to minister regularly before the Lord as each day required, verse 37 of 1 Chronicles. The music and songs of praise offered by the Levites accompanied the priests as they offered the required daily sacrifices to the Lord. So we see this inner, where we see these, these functions relating together. All right, so we've covered uh, quite a bit of ground. Yeah, go ahead. 16. Yeah, First Chronicles 16. Yep, and then some of those key uh, verses were verse 4, verse 6, and verse 37. Yeah, so any questions or comments so far as we've kind of covered ground related to introduction of the role of priests in the Old Testament, holy mediators, ministry of the Levites. Any questions or comments so far? All right, we'll just keep going then. Sounds great. So, <laughs> I know. Um, all right, so, uh, so now let's talk about ministry of the priests, right? So when we think about Old Testament priesthood, this is like who our minds go to, right? Sons of Aaron, right? And then this this particular lineage of priests. So we're going to look at uh, four major functions when we think of the ministry of the priest. It's going to relate to sacrifices. We're going to talk about obedience because their obedience is tied to what happens to Israel as a nation, right? And we'll see that in a particular text. The teaching of the law, which will be really important. And then blessing the people. So let's look at first the proper handling of the sacrifices. And so there's five major sacrifices described in Leviticus 1 through 7. And with a section devoted uh, at the end, uh, beginning of chapter 6 to the end of verse, uh, chapter 7, uh, devoted to instructions for the priests. And the priests must know the function of each sacrifice so that they will know how to treat the animal and to do with its blood. And that's because the blood of the sacrifice represented the life of the animal. Now again, why is the life of the animal and blood important when we talk about sacrifice? Because it is given to make atonement for the people, right? Covering so that way God does not um, show forth his wrath. So the sacrifices specifically are said to make atonement, and they are um, these three, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. So it's very important. And, and um, with these sacrifices, uh, the life of the animal is given in exchange for the life of the one who brings the sacrifice. And we see this, this idea of substitutionary atonement. 
right? And again, that just has like major overtones, right? When we think about the New Testament and the work of Christ and his sacrifice, right? His once for all sacrifice. So, but there's two aspects when we think of atonement related to these sacrifices. One is the covering of sin or what theologians have called expiation. And then secondly, there is the appeasement of the wrath of a holy God, which is propitiation, right? So we see the idea of expiation, the idea of covering, and then we see the idea of appeasement or, or satisfaction with the word propitiation. And the priests are the ones divinely ordained who make this possible because they handle the blood of the sacrifice. And if the priests do not handle the blood properly, Israel's relationship with God is in jeopardy, right? Their role and function as priests was integrally tied to God's relationship with Israel as a people. How does a holy God dwell with a sinful people? So that leads us into our next point, the importance of obedience. And so there's, there's different texts that will highlight the importance of obedience, but I just want to bring out one. Uh, so if you're in Numbers, just turn your way back to Leviticus and look at Leviticus chapter 10. We briefly talked about Nadab and Abihu, but I think it, it is just worth reading Leviticus 10 and verses 1 and 2. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. And if I could have a volunteer who'd be willing to read Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead, Kareem. Yeah, fascinating. So here you have these sons of Aaron, freshly ordained as priests. But then they go beyond what is written, and they offer profane fire, unauthorized fire, or strange fire. And what does God do? He consumes them, right? And they die. Right there, instantaneously. And so... When these sons... When they act in their own disobedience to God, their action, uh, the Lord's actions are immediate and swift, right? And this act of God's judgment shows the importance of the obedience of the priests, right? What happens if the priests are gone, right? If the priests sin, God consumes them, right? And then what, is, what, what then is Israel to do? So again, it's just it's, uh, the, the priesthood is integrally tied to Israel's relationship with the Lord. And I think it's just really important when we think about that. So, thirdly, teaching the law. So, after the whole Nadab and Abihu situation goes down, God instructs Aaron concerning the importance of making proper distinctions in the priest's work. Look down just a little bit farther in Leviticus 10, and uh, let's look at verses 10 and 11. If I can have a volunteer read verses 10 and 11. Yeah, yep. Okay, Alright, go ahead. Yep. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Excellent. So it, it is interesting. 
because when I think of priests, I don't think of teaching, right? I think of priests, sacrifice, blood. Priests, sacrifice, blood. And when I think of teaching, I think of prophets, right? You're like, prophet, you just have these like massive scrolls just of all this stuff, and you're just, you read it, and you're just like, this is crazy, there's so much here, right? But, it, but the priests also have an integral role in the life of Israel in regards to teaching. And it relates to teaching what is holy and common, and then what is clean and unclean. Because this relates to God's stipulations that he gave them in the covenant with Moses, right? In Exodus um, 32. So, but then we saw in verse 11, the priests were not just to be aware of this, but they were to teach the people also. And if we were to read more in Leviticus, we would see that this has implications for how the people live was to be associated with the priests and the teaching of what is holy, right? Not just ceremonially uh, ceremonially clean and holy, but even living a holy life before the Lord, loving others, loving the Lord, things, things of this nature. And we see that this teaching role is, is, is tied in with their role that they serve as priests, right? Making distinctions between holy, clean, and unclean. So... Lastly, is blessing the people of God. Blessing the people of God. The priest's role as mediator between God and the people has two aspects. The priest first represents the people to God by presenting their sacrifices and by interceding for them. The priest also represents God to the people. And this is just, this is really encouraging. The priestly blessing found in Numbers 6, 22 through 27 pronounces God's blessing on the people. And I just want to read this. And, and, you, and this will sound very familiar as we do it as a part of the benediction of our corporate worship. So Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Yes, yeah, so just fascinating thinking about the work and role of the Aaronic priesthood. So, any, any, any questions or comments as we'll get into the, uh, the final stretch? The high priest. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's go ahead. Let's hop into it. So on your notes, so we've looked at priests as holy mediators. We've looked at the ministry of the Levites, right? The ministry of the priests. And now, right, we're getting more restricted, right? Levites, more general service to the priests. The priests are the ones who have access to not only the outer court, which the people would have had access to, but even the inner court, or what's called the holy place. The priests would be allowed there. But now we get to even more restricted space. We get to the high priest and the holy of holies, right? The place of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the cherubim would sit on top the protected, sacred space of the Lord. 
Now, how often could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? Once a year, right? And again, what is that doing? It's emphasizing. This is very special, right? In fact, I might get ahead of my notes here, but um, no one else was allowed in the tabernacle or the temple, in, in, in the inner court. No, no other priests were allowed when the high priest went in. It was only to be him. Right? So it's really just like building, right? When he goes in and, and enters the Holy of Holies, right? It's really just to show this contrast. So, so then, um, so first, stricter regulations for the high priest. The role of the high priest required greater regulations and strictness because of the increased holiness, right, needed for this special access. And so, um, and just to give you an example, this was seen with death and mourning. So the, um, so the priest, um, uh, let me say this, touching a dead body brought one into a state of uncleanness. And the priests were allowed to touch, to touch dead bodies only of very close relatives, right? A mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or unmarried sister, right? Those were the only ones. But the high priest, is even more restricted. He cannot make himself unclean for even his father or mother, according to, um, yeah, according, uh, yep. all right, and I did not write the chapter, I just have the verse, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but if you do have a question, I can get it for you, no problem. Uh, and then uh, also the other example includes marriage restrictions, right? Where the priest, the high priest had even greater restrictions than the priest, right? And it's just emphasizing that. Um, and so the Nazarite vow, we're just going to uh, move over. So if you want to read more, read Numbers 6 verses 1 through 8. But it basically allowed any Israelite to have similar holiness to a priest by taking this vow. So, um, so let's go ahead and look at the ministry of the high priest, right? And then, and then we'll kind of we'll bring this to a close. So the high priest was set apart from other priests by the garments he wore. We see that in Exodus twenty-eight, and the actions he performed on the day of atonement. And we see that in Leviticus sixteen. He would go into the most holy place once a year to present the blood of the sacrifices to make atonement. No one else was in the tabernacle when the high priest went into the most holy place because only one person could act as a mediator. He had to take precautions so that he would not die because the most holy place was the place of God's presence. And God appeared in the cloud above the mercy seat. When the high priest went inside, he was to put incense on the fire so that the cloud of incense would cover the mercy seat and keep him from viewing the presence of God. That's Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13. And Leviticus 16, verse, verse 2. So how does this work? The Day of Atonement. What is taking place, right, with these sacrifices? And if you'll remember... There's going to be two goats, 
right, related to the Day of Atonement. What's going on with these two goats? So first, so before we get to the goats, the high priest needed to offer a bull as a sin offering for his own sins and the sins of his house. And then there's some other precautions that are taken in regards to washing. And the blood was taken into the most holy place and was sprinkled in front of the mercy seat. Then two goats were brought forward. One goat became a sin offering for the people and the other became the scapegoat. The blood of the sacrificed goat was taken into the most holy place and sprinkled before the mercy seat to make atonement for the holy place because of the people's transgression. Blood from the bull and the goat were sprinkled on the altar of burnt offering, Leviticus 16, verses 18 and 19, to consecrate it for another year of service to the Lord. The shedding of blood was necessary to make atonement for the high priest, for the people, and for the tabernacle, right? And it's just fascinating. When you think about this, and then you think about the book of Hebrews, right? Because what is the Day of Atonement doing? By its constant year over year, it's a reminder that the tabernacle and the temple and the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices are not enough. They can't actually do it. They can't really accomplish, right, only what Christ can accomplish. It's right? just fascinating. So, so, but then let's go to, to the second goat. What happens to the second goat, right? So Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22. He, the, the second goat gets presented. And what happens? The high priest laid both his hands on the head of the goat and confessed over it the sin of the people. And you see these, these different words used for sin. You see iniquity, transgression, and sin. It, it was meant to be this comprehensive confession, right? Given. And then the live goat was then sent out into the wilderness to bear the sin of the people. The sins of the Israelites were completely removed. This goat pictured the removal of guilt, which was a result of the atonement. So it's, it's a beautiful picture what we see on the Day of Atonement. But again, we, we look at it and we can see it also has these amazing pointers, right? As it's really pointing forward to Christ and to his work as sacrifice and priest once for all. All right, so quick recap. When we think about priests, right, so now we're going to like zoom back out, right? So we were just like in a whole bunch of like weeds and details, right? And it was, it was, it was gruesome and great, right? We, just, we, saw, we saw a lot of it, right? When we step back out, when we think about priests, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about God's special presence with people, with his people, right? And pre-fall and post-fall. After the fall of Adam and Eve, introduction of sin, we see altars and sacrifices and priests, right, that are needed, right? Even though we see the idea of priests before the fall. So, in all of these, right, after the fall, they were temporary because they were pointing forward to something better, to something more permanent. The priesthood and sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God. So, any questions or comments 
um, thinking about Old Testament priests or sacrifices or you know, just all, all these things together. That is a good question. I, I'm not sure. That is a good question. That will be interesting to go and check out. Because I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. But that would be fascinating to see. Are, are there nuances or differences, or are they the same? Yeah, there's a difference between the high priest and the regular priest. Correct. It makes sense that there might be a difference. Right, because the Levites were really serving the priest, right? So there's that, there's that difference, yes. No, absolutely. It would make sense. No, I think I think there are some groups where they have tried to restore pieces of that, like yeah, today. But I'm but I'm but I'm not sure though. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for our time. Father, what a joy it was to think about your special presence, a holy God dwelling with a sinful people. And how you, by grace, that you draw near, and you're the one who institutes this so that we can dwell with you and our joy can be full. And we thank you for Christ, the great high priest and ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. And now we have special access to the Holy of Holies. We worship you. Bless us as we go to gather with corporate worship. Fill our hearts with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.